But before we read it, uh, let me just ask you some questions that while touching on different things, really share the same answer. What is the greatest barrier to you being unbelievably happy in the Lord? What, more than anything, leaves you, believer, feeling like you're still under God's condemnation and judgment? Why, ladies, do you feel so guilty for all the times you've failed to juggle all the responsibilities that you have and focus on what's most important? Why is it, men, that we think that because we looked at pornography yesterday that we cannot worship God today? Why is it, husbands, that you allow a crippling sense of failure in the discipleship of your wife and your children to make you feel like throwing in the towel completely? Why is it, brothers and sisters, that we allow even the serious sins of the past to afflict us today? Well, the answer is a loss of confidence in the full and free forgiveness that is ours through the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's not believing in the day-to-day that our sins, actually all of them, are forgiven, that they are paid in full. It's forgetting that we've been made perfect already through the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, two verses in this passage I'm about to read really drive this home today with some force. It's just written for us in black and white. And the question is, are we going to take God at his word or not? It says that through the death of Jesus in our place, verse 14, we'll get to it. Don't worry, I know we've not read it yet. That verse 14 says, you are made perfect. Perfect. So perfect, it's just as if you've never sinned. And not temporarily so, completely so. The second thing in verse 18 is where it says, your sins and lawless acts, God says, I will remember no more. What what a statement. Yet, I believe, I see it in my own life, I see it in ours, we live as if those last two words weren't there. Having believed the gospel, happily so at the beginning, we live as if verse 18 said, I will remember their sins and lawless acts. Now, I'm concerned about that for all of us because I think this is the biggest hindrance to us in every area of Christian living. Every area. Because people who act like God still remembers their sins and lawless acts either allow themselves to be crushed by an overwhelming sense of guilt or they'll do the opposite of the gospel. They'll try and work really, really hard to clean themselves up so that they might present themselves before God as something worth saving. And neither of those work. There is only one thing that you can possibly do when you've lost confidence in the gospel, and that's revisit the cross and look to Jesus, whose once-for-all sacrifice takes away our sin completely, deals with our sin problem completely. This is good. Let's turn to Hebrews 10, 1 to 18. It's a book that's written to believers from a Jewish background, of course. They've lost confidence in the gospel. They're actually in danger of making the second mistake that I've talked about there, of going back to hard work, good works, to try and make themselves savable. 
tempted to return to the old ways of the Jewish sacrificial system. But the author of Hebrews says you don't need to do anything like that. Jesus has done it all for you. Listen to what he says in chapter 10. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly, year after year, make perfect those who draw near in worship. Otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and no longer have felt guilty for, all their, for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. Then he said, here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, my God. First he said, sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings, you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, though they were offered in accordance with the law. Then he said, here I am. I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties again and again. He offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered once, offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First, he says, this is the covenant I will make with them. After that time, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, their sins and lawless acts, I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. Amen. This is God's word. So we're going to look at this under two headings. The first is shorter. Uh, verses 1 to 4, nothing you can do can make you perfect. Uh, nothing you can do can make you perfect. And secondly, verses 5 to 18, Christ has made you perfect forever. So first of all, nothing you can do can make you perfect. Uh, verses 1 to 4. If you're here today, by the way, and you're not a Christian, we're so glad you're here. You're always, always welcome. If you, let me give you just a little bit of the background to this. Basically, this is the, an insight into the Christian worldview, right? That if you don't look to Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, it's helpful to understand what this means. Um, the Christian worldview is essentially that by nature and in action, we are imperfect people, okay? The word perfect is in there in that passage a few times. We're talking about perfection. Now, imperfect in comparison to the one in whose image we're made, that's God, who is infinitely perfect. Holy is the word that we use in every way. Now, this combination of our imperfection and God's absolute perfection creates a huge dilemma for two parties who should be relating to one another well, in love. 
How can God and humanity relate in a way that they're supposed to relate when sin creates such a barrier and such a divide? The good news of the gospel that we love is that God promised a solution and provided it in the form of a substitute. Someone whose death, someone who died in our place to take away our sin, take away this barrier so that we who are estranged might be brought near, we might be friends. Now the Hebrews and believers in this passage believed this gospel, okay, this good news, but for some reason they've lost confidence in it. Now that's why we read in verses one to four about them being tempted to go back to the old Jewish sacrificial system. A sacrificial system that God put in place to help people relate to him, really, while they awaited the coming of Christ. And it had been promised from the early chapters of Genesis. Uh, even as Moses offered and delivered the law, there was a promise of a Messiah king to come. But they're still looking for a way to deal with their sin and their guilt. Maybe looking for something tangible to do. But the writer to Hebrews here says, in the first instance, that's pointless. Pointless. It's totally futile. There's nothing you can do to make yourself right with God. And he, gives a, he tells them uh, two reasons why that's the case in verses 1 to 4. First of all, the law is only a shadow. We see that in verse 1a. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming. In other words, it's shadow. It's not the substance that you're really looking for. Christ is the substance. The reality <clears throat> that casts the shadow. So the writer is saying, why are you looking to go back to the old ways? That's as crazy as greeting a friend that you love by opening your front door and throwing yourself on the ground to hug their shadow. It makes no sense when the reality is right there in front of you with open arms. The second thing he says is that the law can't actually make you perfect anyway. It didn't fulfill that function in the past, so why are you going back to it now? Verse 1b, the law can never by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect, so there's the subject again, those who draw near to worship. Now remember, perfection is what it means to be on good terms with the holy gods. But look at what the writer just said. The old setup never achieved that. So why go back to it? Now someone might ask at this point, okay, if, if the old setup of the sacrificial system couldn't achieve perfection, couldn't actually take away sins, as this passage says. Why did God put it in place? It's a good question. The answer is simple, really. It's to enable God's Old Testament people to relate to him and to provide that shadow, that sign, if you like, that points forward to the true substance, the one on whom God wants every eye, the one in whom every trusting heart believes. Now think about it, says the author, these Old Testament sacrifices that you're tempted to go back to, are they, are you, do these work? The old sacrifices didn't work, he, and he gives us a few features or reasons why when he says, for example, the old sacrifices were repeated. See the language in there? Endlessly, year after year. The repetition proved that it wasn't sufficient to make you perfect. In fact, the they, they served their purpose, these sacrifices, basically by reminding people how guilty they were and how much of a problem their sin actually was. Every time you went, as verse 3 indicates, you were reminded of your guilt. You saw how ingrained it was in you. That's why we read ultimately in verse 4, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. 
So there is, in that sacrificial system, no answer to the problem of sin, guilt, and shame. They weren't cleansed in the first instance way back then. So Hebrew believers, why are you trying to do something to make yourself perfect by going back to these old things? When you have the substance, the true substance, Christ. Now you might be wondering, what, how on earth does this apply to us? Uh, we don't come from a Jewish background. We've never looked at animal sacrifices to make us right with God. At least I hope you haven't. Uh, but we actually make the same mistakes as they did. When we try to do something to make us more deserving of salvation. And we can do that in a couple of ways. We do that either by doing good works or by heaping up great guilt. Uh, some people like to try and do this by doing good. They say, I'm, I'm, I'm not, I've sinned in a lot of ways. I'm not a good Christian. I must do better. I must try harder. But Ephesians 2 tells us very plainly, it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. It's not by works. Maybe... Uh, maybe we're like, maybe we do the second thing though. Maybe we beat ourselves up with guilt. Maybe we look at things that we've said or done in the past <clears throat> or just a long line of, of uh, sinning in the same way over many years. We say things like, well, I don't know how God could possibly love me to the extent that he says he loves me. Not when you think about all the things that I've done. Maybe just if I suffer just a little bit longer, it might kind of in some way atone for or make up for some of the mistakes that I've made. But brothers and sisters, listen, what are we saying when we do that? When we think that somehow by doing good works or heaping a bit, a bit more guilt on ourselves might just make us just that little bit more acceptable to God, what are we saying about his blood what are we saying about some of the final words that Jesus breathed out on that cross? It is finished, he said. When we try and do good works, when we try and self-flagellate with guilt, it's just like we're saying, it's not quite finished. You did a good job. Almost all the way there, but there's just a little bit of making up to do. Or we say, that blood that is fully sufficient to cover a world of sins, it's maybe just not quite efficient to cover mine. Not when I've done what I've done. Not true, brothers and sisters. Lies, brothers and sisters. Don't believe it for a second. Oh, but I feel that way. And I say that. You've probably said that. How much do our feelings lie to us? They are not the base level of truth. God's word is. Are we going to take our own word as truth? Or are we going to take his? Doing good or trying to heap up guilt in a way that tries to make ourselves a bit more lovely in God's sight or worth saving in God's sight are actually signs that show that we've lost confidence in the gospel. It's like we want to sing, Jesus paid for most of it. doesn't make sense it's not the gospel it's not the gospel so what should we do well the answer is simple there's only one thing that you can do 
Go to the cross and see what the sacrifice of Jesus actually achieved for all who believe in him. And this is the second point. This is exactly what we see in verses 5 to 18. In 5 to 18, we see that Christ has made us perfect forever. Now, here are three things I want to highlight for you. First of all, that Jesus offered, when he, he offered himself as a sacrifice, and he, when he offered himself as a sacrifice, his was perfectly accepted. One of the reasons for that is because he offered an equivalent sacrifice for our sin. Uh, that, that was better than any Old Testament type sacrifice, any animal sacrifice. And this is what we see in verses 5 to 9. Verses 5 to 9 throw in the language about, well, a human body and a human will. So if our, and it makes sense, of course, because if our sins are, are, are committed in human bodies, really only someone in a human body can be an equivalent sacrifice if they're going to be our substitute. You know, having said in verse 4, the author said it's impossible for the blood of animals to take away sins. The writer then says, logically in verse 5, sacrifice and offering you did not deserve, but a body you prepared for me. And these words are put into the mouth of Christ. And of course, if our rebellious wills are at the root of our sins, also only some, someone with a desire to do God's will can be an equivalent sacrifice. So think about it. How willing do you think all those animals were to die in the place of sinners? How willing do you think they were? I'm pretty sure if bulls could speak, not one of them would have said, here I am, take me instead. I think that would be ridiculous. I think the act of sacrifice was performed on them. The animal, no doubt, was unwilling. But verse 7 says that when Christ came, he said, here I am. I have come to do your will as he addresses God the Father. So he offered the body equivalent to our human error, our human sin, and he offered a willing sacrifice to counter our rebellious wills. And he offered himself as a sacrifice, doing it perfectly as the obedient son. He lived his life perfectly, sinned in no way, tempted but was without sin, which qualified him to be this perfect, unblemished sacrifice. And these Old Testament sacrifices, as the writer said, didn't bring God pleasure, but when his son willingly laid down his life in love to rescue billions, the father was absolutely delighted. Second thing that we see in this is that Jesus offered not only an equivalent sacrifice, but an a superior sacrifice. You see this in verses 11 to 13. How do we know it was superior? Look at what he's doing now. What's he doing in verses 11 to 13? See it for yourself. He's sitting. He's waiting. What a picture. I mean, compare that with the priests in Jerusalem standing and performing religious duties which can never take away sins, as verse 11 says. Their work is endless, unfinished, ineffective, he performed one sacrifice, and that was enough. Job done. His sacrifice was superior in every way. That's why he sits in heaven at the highest place. That's why he waits. He's not doing anything but waiting for that day when he will rise to return and bring in the new heaven and new earth. But what the writer is highlighting for us in this moment is that God is 
satisfied with that superior sacrifice. He is satisfied in every way. In other words, there's no need for any more sacrifices. No need to do anything else when everything has already been done. Thirdly, in this section, Jesus offered this effective sacrifice. We see this in verse 10, verse 14, and in verses 15 to 18. This is incredible. Look, look at these verses. See for yourself. We'll put them on screen. Look at what this sacrifice achieved. Verse 10, by that will. So he's just talked about the human body and the human will as he offered this sacrifice. By that will, we, we have been made holy. Made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So if you believe the gospel, brothers and sisters, if you've looked to Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, you have been made holy. Verse 14. This is astounding. I, I must have read this verse a million times this week. I just can't go over it. I was walking around the office this week talking to people, just shouting into their office, hey, you've been made perfect forever. It's astounding to us. By one sacrifice, Jesus has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Made perfect forever. And yet we struggle with assurance and confidence and guilt and shame. What has this once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross achieved for us? In no uncertain terms, Hebrews 10 says, your forever perfection. Nothing you can do can make you perfect, but Christ has made you perfect forever. Nothing you can do can make you perfect. Christ has made you perfect forever. Don't overlook the verses, the tense of verses 10 and 14. Made holy, past tense. Made perfect forever, past tense. The work's done. Now I hear the objection straight away. Some of you are saying to yourself, well, made perfect? I certainly don't feel perfect. Some of you are actually thinking about the person next to you saying perfect is definitely not the word I would use to describe this guy or this girl. Now we know full and well that in the day-to-day -day just now we are not sinless. We don't expect to be. We know that as we read our Bibles. This is not the case. And that's why verse 14 is crucial for us. It basically says that you're positionally perfect and progressively being perfected all at the same time. You're made perfect forever in terms of your status, but on an ongoing basis, you are still being made perfect. Now, you might be saying, choose one. Can't be both. Yes, it can. Let me show you. I want to show you this by uh, using a graph here. I'm going to go on mathematical. Not really. Here we go. Okay. Now, the axis on the left is the righteousness axis, right? Not percent righteous at the very bottom where the yellow dot is and 100% righteous at the top. And the bottom line is uh, your lifeline. We're looking fairly generous there. We're going up past 100, so we'll see how we go with that. Now, the Bible says that when we're born, um, um, that actually we're born sinners, and as we go through life, we keep on sinning. 
uh, that even all our righteous deeds are like filthy rags, so we are fundamentally, by nature and by deeds, unrighteous. So that's why the yellow dot is at the bottom there. Now, here's what happens when you turn from sin and believe the gospel. I'll stick it in at 19. That's the age I became a Christian. At that moment, you are what the Bible calls justified, okay? Now, justification is a legal term where God the judge has handed down the verdict saying, you are declared righteous. You're righteous in his sight. You are not guilty. That means that you are positionally, in his eyes, perfect. For when he looks at you, he sees the death of Christ. He sees that Christ's blood has made atonement for you and you have applied or appropriated that blood to yourself through repentance, turning from sin, and faith, trusting in Christ. Now that's the first part, positionally, that's the first part of verse 14. You're positionally perfect. I love that. That is a great doctrine. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 100%. Perfect. You should be an awful lot more amazed. I'm enthusiastic for you. Now, even though you're, not position, you're positionally perfect, we know we're not actually perfect yet. No, that actual perfection comes at the point of glorification. Let's show this. Actual perfection comes, well, it comes, comes when you die. Let's face it. Uh, you're immediately kind of translated to heaven and uh, all sin and suffering is gone and you are as righteous as righteous can be. It either happens when you die or when the Lord Jesus comes back, of course. That's when sin is fully and finally gone. Oh, yes, what a day. Now, here's what happens in between. Here is the made holy. Here's the progressively being made holy bit, okay? This is sanctification. This bit in between, this uh, justification and the glorification is where you are, is sanctification. It's where you are being progressively changed more and more into the likeness of Jesus. So we who, are, who positionally are holy are being made holy, as verse 14 says. It's clear, isn't it? God is perfecting now those he's already perfected in his eyes. It's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. That Christ has fully sanctified those who are now presently being sanctified. I love that. Now, the thing that typifies that life in between that justification and glorification is found in, well, you see two things in verses 15 to 18. Two things typify those who are being made holy. And this is the transformation that God brings about in us. There's a new desire to obey his will and a new confidence, an ongoing confidence in the gospel that you have believed. In terms of this new desire to obey his will, as he's talking about Jeremiah here again, this would be the sign of the new covenant, typical of people who believe the gospel with their whole heart, typical of people of faith. There is a deep desire to walk in his ways with the knowledge of the truth and a love in your heart for God's. And a deep, and you know, that's not just a, I'm going to be obedient all the way. Yes, positively, that is exactly what I want to be holy. I don't want to do this, this, and this. I want to do that, that, and that. That's right. 
But on the flip side of it, reactively, negatively, having that heart and that mind that is attuned to doing God's will is seen just as much in your conviction of sin, brothers and sisters, as it is in your desire to do good. Don't you find that? Don't you find that there are some sins that you do and you're absolutely furious about it? You're frustrated. You're so gutted about it. The error in this situation is when you allow those things to impact you in a way as if the blood of Christ has not been appropriated to you. We have to believe the gospel with our whole heart and recognize that the conviction that in us ought not to grow arms and legs and turn into a guilt monster. But this conviction should lead us to back to the gospel, back to verse 10, back to verse 14, back to 17, their sins and lawless acts, I'll remember no more. So there's an ongoing, enduring desire to live for him. And secondly, there's a confidence in the gospel. Could use the word assurance here. that you believe God when he said, as it says there in black and white in verse 17, their sins and lawless acts, I'll remember no more. What a statement. Your sins and lawless acts I'm not going to hold against you. What a statement. Now, we know that God is omniscient. He can't actually forget anything. But he's using human language to tell us something about himself and something about us when we believe in the one he sent. He's saying that when he looks at Jesus, he chooses to forget your sins. The ones you committed in the past, the ones you're committing today, the ones that you'll commit tomorrow and every other day until you die or until he comes back. He's not going to hold them against you. He doesn't need to. Actually, it would be completely contrary to his holy character and his goodness to do that. Because God would be unjust in inflicting judgment twice. Can't do it. Won't do it. You're not an enemy. You're his child. You're not under his condemnation. There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in, in Christ Jesus. You are so united to him when you trust in his blood, you are in him. And Romans 8 tells you that there's nothing that can be done to you or you can do to take you out of him. You're in. Your confidence in the gospel, friends, prevents you from offering sacrifices aimed at cleaning yourself up because you realize that you're already clean, you're already made perfect forever, and your sins and lawless acts have not been held against you ever. Isn't that good news? Friend, if you're here today, you're not a Christian. 
What do you do to deal with guilt and shame? It's not just a Christian experience, it's everybody's experience. Life is full of regrets. Life is full of mistakes. We make bad choices. What the Bible teaches is that when we recognize that those things are not just mistakes on our part that we might need to make up for, but actually sins and offenses against him, it kind of ramps up the seriousness of the mistakes that we make. But that's not, that's, that's presented to us not as a thing to make us kind of shrink back from God, but as the thing to help us face up to the reality and then see how utterly glorious his love and his grace and his forgiveness is. And he, you can enjoy the very thing that I enjoy, the thing that everybody in this church family who believes in Jesus enjoys. Though we know we're not perfect, I, I suck in every way. I am a terrible Christian in so many ways. But I've been made perfect forever. I, I'm trying to take God at his word every day so that I'm not going to beat myself up with guilt or decry the gospel by trying to do good works. I'm going to be like, Lord, I suck, but you are a great savior. When we get the gospel like that, we should be the happiest people in this world. And friend, if you're here today and you don't know him yet, you can be. You don't need to do anything to scrub yourself up. You just need to turn from your sin and receive it like a gift. It's a free gift. Believe in the Lord Jesus today and you too will be saved. Nothing you can do can make you perfect. Christ has made you perfect forever. And what's the, the effect of all this? Well, quickly, let's look, look at the next section. Look at what confidence creates in people who had, who had lost their confidence Here's the effect on the believer. Verse 19, I'm going into next week's passage. Never mind, it's okay, not too much. Verse 19, since you have confidence, okay? Since you remember your sin, the sins and lawless acts are not held against you. Since you have confidence in the blood of Jesus, in the once for all sacrifice of his body on the cross, what's, his effect, what's the effect of this in our Christian lives? Verse 22, you draw near to God. You see him as an open-armed father, not as a finger-wagging judge. You run into his arms because you get grace. Verse 23, you hold on to your hope. Nothing moves you from that because you're like, do you know what? When all is gone but the gospel, I've still got the gospel. And then verse 24, you spur each other on. This is why you become members in a local church. To remind one another of these glorious gospel truths. And verse 35, do not throw away your confidence. Why? Your confidence that you have been made holy, made perfect in Christ, will be richly rewarded. What do you think that means? Glorified. Oh, that day when freed from sinning. Oh, when I see your lovely face, oh, it's glorious. So here's what I want you to do. Application, one thing. Well, it's one thing, it's got four things underneath it, but we'll do it quickly. One thing, one thing, preach the gospel to yourself every day. Simple. Preach the gospel to yourself every day. How? 
four ways. Memorize, book, uh, memorize verses like verses 14 and 17. Let them make you unbelievably happy. Let them slay the guilt monster that seeks to crush you into ineffectiveness in your Christian life that keeps your mouth shut in mission. Kill it. Forget about it. Let, memorize these verses. Read good books, books like Jerry Bridges' book, The Discipline of Grace. The first three chapters of this book changed my life in understanding union with Christ and sanctification. It's a brilliant book. There's a little book, Is Forgiveness Really Free? on the bookstall. It's only three pounds. And Milton Vincent, one that I don't have to wave, is um, Milton Vincent's book called A Gospel Primer is a must. We need to get tons of those on the bookstall, actually. Uh, mental notes. Okay, uh, after that, keep it central in church life. Rehearse these things together. Not just on the days when we rejoice in the gospel as we share in communion, but every day, every week, rehearse these things when we gather. Storm the pulpit if anybody stops preaching this, because this is what it's all about. Carry away anyone who preaches a works-based salvation where we're telling you to do more and try harder. It's not the gospel. And lastly, take him at his word, friends. Believe it. What would your life look like if you took him at his word today? There's nothing you can do that can make yourself perfect. Don't try to add to the work that Christ has already done. You've been made perfect forever. Incredible. Let's pray.